in any given interaction that escalates or then results in a use of force or an arrest that maybe could have been avoided, there are features of that interaction that then drive forward what happens down the road. And in this training, what we're trying to do is affect how officers think through the features of any given interaction so that they might find other solutions. Welcome to The Pie. I'm your host, Tess Vigland. Economists are always talking about the pie, how it grows and shrinks, how it's sliced, who gets the biggest share. In this show, we're talking about the most pressing matters of the day seen through the lens of economics. The Pie is a production of the University of Chicago's Becker Friedman Institute. And in this episode, we're examining new strategies for how law enforcement can avoid adverse outcomes in their interaction with the citizenry. From Michael Brown to Breonna Taylor to George Floyd, police use of force has prompted a national debate over misconduct and unnecessary arrests and how to solve what many believe to be a systemic issue. Our guests today partnered with the Chicago Police Department in an experiment to see if a different kind of behavioral training could change some of these outcomes. Hi, I'm Andrella Dubay. I'm the Philip K. Pearson Professor of Global Conflict Studies at the Harris School of Public Policy at the University of Chicago. And my favorite pie, by far, is the s'mores pie. My name is Anuj Shah. I'm an Associate Professor of Behavioral Science at the Booth School of Business. And my favorite pie is the pecan pie. Well, I'd like to start by asking both of you a little bit about what prompted this research. I think we're all aware of issues with police use of excessive force, unnecessary arrests, especially in the wake of George Floyd's murder and uh, all the mass protests against that across the country. And for the most part, these are often blamed on problematic officers or a lack of oversight of regulation. But you looked at that and said, maybe there's a little more going on here. Andrella, let's spark this for you. Very interesting question. I think what sparked it for me was seeing how the national conversation around policing seemed to be a little bit stuck in these two particular buckets of explanations, where, of course, you know, people were talking about problematic officers and Of course, we recognize that there could be problematic officers and racial bias that they exhibit could be an issue. And people were talking a lot about lack of oversight and accountability in police departments. And we also recognize that deficient policies are certainly at play in terms of what could be going on here. But it really just seemed like we were overlooking a major factor that had to do with what the nature of policing really is. And the nature of policing means that police officers are often placed in situations where they are under stress and have to make quick decisions. And these factors can really interfere with their ability to make good decisions and lead to adverse policing outcomes. And it just seemed like that was completely missing from the national conversation. So for me, it was a desire to bring that perspective back in and provide a perspective that had largely been overlooked. Anuj? Yeah. And so piggybacking off of what Andrilla said, she really articulated kind of the 
the problem that we saw in front of us. And then the question was, well, what do we do about that? And for me, my, my entry point came from some work that I'd been involved in with Sarah Heller and others at the crime lab some time back, where we were evaluating these youth anti-violence programs that really try to get kids to pause and reflect in moments of conflict and to try to look at that conflict from different perspectives, to question the first assumption that comes to mind in those moments, to see whether taking another look at the situation opens up other possible ways of responding to it, other possible solutions. And what's interesting about the fact that those programs are effective is that basic insight that kids or anybody need to take a beat to pause and question their assumptions or think about another perspective on the situation, that really does apply to anybody in lots of these moments of conflict. And especially if we're thinking about officers interacting with members of the community in moments of conflict, that seems like another situation where trying to think through different interpretations of a situation that you're in before acting could be beneficial. And so the inspiration came from some of those other studies that we'd been involved in. So I kind of mentioned these earlier, but could you walk us through what the current environment is in terms of where the blame usually goes on this issue? So we've mentioned excessive force. We've mentioned unnecessary arrests. Can we go a little more in depth on some of the well-known causes behind those? Andrella? I think part of the challenge here is that the conversation often reflects the assumption about what the drivers of adverse policing outcomes are. And we don't have great research that actually goes hand in hand with these common perspectives. So for example, there's often discussion about problematic officers, for example, who willfully ignore policy, maybe actually enjoy hurting others, or who exhibit racial bias. And on the one hand, you know, the idea of racial bias is certainly consistent with the fact that there is a literature that documents a lot of racial disparities in policing. But of course, above and beyond what particular officers are like, we might be interested in finding levers that are helpful to all officers, regardless of what their starting point is, right? Um, and I think that's part of what we're trying to achieve with the training that we've designed is whatever the starting point is, you know, can you uh, lead, uh, to, lead officers to, to an even better place? Anuj, did you want to say anything about that? Yeah, maybe just to build on that, which is in any given interaction that escalates or then results in a use of force or an arrest that maybe could have been avoided, there are features of that interaction that then drive forward what happens down the road. And in this training, what we're trying to do is affect how officers think through the features of, of any given interaction so that they might find other solutions um, in those interactions or moments of conflict. Why do you think this factor has been overlooked? This, this I, I mean, it's really just a basic human factor, right? Because when you think about it, it's, it's almost too obvious. Police officers face the possibility of danger 
every moment of their day to a much greater extent than the rest of us. How could that not play into the way they make decisions, right? And and that managing that would be crucial to making better decisions. Why do you think this has not been part of the conversation? I'll start with this, which is, you know, from a psychological perspective, people often when they see something happen, they start by making attributions about the person involved in that. And so we often naturally wonder, what is it about this person that caused them to use force or that caused them to resolve this uh, situation in a way that maybe seems like it escalated things too much? And we don't often step back and ask, well, what was it about the situation itself? And that's probably especially true when you think about the key situational factor here that might be leading to some of these adverse outcomes in policing. That key situational factor being that there are a lot of cognitive demands that officers have to learn to navigate. If I can add to that, I think generally there's an awareness that officers face stress in the situations they encounter. But I don't think that anyone has been able to think about how behavioral science could actually be helpful in suggesting an actual tool to help them better manage that situation. So we didn't really have a sense that officers could be trained to actually navigate these cognitive demands better. And going back to the inspiration for the study, when Anuj and I saw that some of these tools from behavioral science that were helping youth question their automatic assumptions were proving effective in helping them make better decisions, and that was in some sense a you know tough crowd as well, when we saw that it could set them on a different path, I think it gave us hope for then using this tool to help officers better navigate these situations as well. So we just didn't have a sense about the extent to which officer behavior could be malleable with respect to a training like this. And I think that's been one of the contributions of the work is demonstrating that indeed it can be and that officer behavior can be changed with tools borrowed from behavioral science. All right. Well, let's talk about some of those tools. And through your research, you designed really a new training program to potentially help officers manage some of those, the the cognitive demands that Anoush mentioned. You call it situational decision-making or SIT-D. So we'll be using that term throughout this discussion. SIT-D is the name of this new training program. Before we get into some of the specific aspects of the training itself, can you talk a little bit about what you based it on? Presumably there's quite a bit of psychology in here. Yeah. So this training is based on some aspects of the psychology of judgment and decision-making, which has spent a lot of time trying to think about what kind of biases or patterns in people's thoughts might affect their decision-making. And are there anything are there things that we can do to de-bias people? So part of it's based on the psychology of judgment and decision-making, and part of it is based on the literature on cognitive behavioral therapy, which to maybe summarize a little, a little bit too briefly is broadly about getting people to notice their thoughts and consider other thoughts they might have and how that could affect their behaviors downstream. And so we drew a lot of inspiration from 
from both literatures. And we also paired that psychology component with the use of scenario-based training, which is a technique used in policing to train officers. All right, so let's go through some of the specifics of the SIT-D program. And I want to hear first about how it teaches officers to recognize situations that might create more of those cognitive demands, that might be doing something to their brain that they're maybe not aware of. I'm sure the training is hours long, but if one of you could shrink it down to a couple of minutes for us, maybe. Yeah, so... We really think of the training as having kind of three key elements. And the first element is the one that you touched on, which is training officers to recognize what are going to be cognitively demanding situations. As an example, we have officers do an exercise where we have them write down what triggers them, what triggers strong emotions in them, like anger or irritation. And they'll say things like, Well, when someone flips me off or when someone refuses to show ID, typically they'll list a set of things where they perceive the person as having contempt of cop. And it's useful for them to be aware that these are the situations that trigger them because these are the situations in which the potential problems or challenges can come up. The second element of the training, what are these problems? Well, We teach officers about what we call thinking traps, which are really a set of cognitive biases that they might fall prey to in these cognitively demanding situations. By that, we mean things like overgeneralizing from their past experience to this experience, or personalizing, you know, assuming that people are behaving in ways with the intent to antagonize them. And so then once they're aware of these thinking traps, we then try to give them a set of tools to help them avoid falling into those traps. And that's really the third element of the training. We try to do that by training them so they don't just go with default thinking and default assumptions in the situation they're in, but rather diagnose them more extensively by considering different potential interpretations of the situation instead of just going with the first thing that comes to mind. And that's where the scenario-based training really comes into play. Because what we do is we use a technology called force option simulators through which they do scenario-based training. Anuj, I wonder if you could give us a real-world example of how that might work. Yeah. I mean, you can imagine a situation where, say, for example, suppose that an officer sees a man rushing towards them down the dark alley or down a street, and the man is shouting something unintelligible, and and maybe the officer notices a glint of something in that person's hand. Now an officer has to, and they might feel like they have to do this very quickly, think about what exactly is going on. What's that glint, for example? And an officer might start by assuming that maybe the glint's a weapon. And they might respond as such, perhaps even drawing or using their own firearm. But that's really just one interpretation that they could have in that moment, right? They could have considered the possibility that the person is drunk and the glint is a bottle, or the person is injured and they're shouting because they're calling for help, and the glint is their cell phone because they're calling for help. 
And those are all possibilities that an officer could consider. But if they're feeling rushed or stressed, they might not think through all those different interpretations. And this training is meant to give officers more practice at thinking through those different interpretations so that it comes more naturally and more quickly in those moments of stress. And we also try to, and the trainers try to teach officers techniques to make the most of the time that they have, Um, whether that's, for example, stepping back a little bit so that they have a little bit more time to respond as somebody's approaching them, or if you have a certain amount of time to figure out what's going on, rather than just having the same thought over and over and over again, to use the time to think about different possibilities and what the evidence is for or against those possibilities. I found it really interesting in the research that you you really boiled all of this down to a very simple question for officers to ask themselves, which is, what else could I be missing? And it seems really simple, but you touched on this, that that judgment has to be made in so many instances so incredibly quickly. So it really becomes a behavior change. It has to become part of their DNA. Yeah. And, you know, what's funny about that question is it really does seem simple, except it's something that all of us struggle with every day where right. we, we often think we know exactly what we're looking at. And then if we're really lucky, maybe in that moment, we realize, oh, wait, here's a different way to see it. Um, if we're less lucky, maybe we only realize it well after the fact. And so it's something that is actually hard to do even when you have a lot of time. It becomes a lot harder to do when you have less time. But it is something that it seems we can get better at if we practice it, especially since offices are practicing it in the context of situations that are very close to what they're facing in the line of duty. And because they also have time in between each training session, they get to see what it's like to use the training in the line of duty as they're still being trained as well. And we also give them some practical tools for how to be able to tackle that question under circumstances of high stress. So since stress makes it really difficult to think clearly, we give them the tool of engaging in what we call tactical breathing, which is taking three deep breaths to actually unlock active thinking in that moment when stress could really be getting in the way of your ability to do that. Tamp down on the adrenaline a little bit. Exactly. So then you take this training out into the real world with a randomized controlled trial with Chicago PD, and this is the second largest police department in the country. Andrella, how did you go about evaluating whether SIT-D was doing what you hoped it would do? What were the data that you were looking at? So the core of the evaluation was starting with a pool of 2,070 officers and using random assignment to place half of them into a group who would get the training while the other half served as a comparison group. And we really have two sources of data that we look at for the evaluation. First, about four months after the training, we bring everyone back into the lab, which is really the police academy at CPD, and we run them through a series of assessments using different types of scenarios and having them fill out some questionnaires. Those are the lab assessments. But in addition, in order to see 
if the training had an impact on what they were doing out on the street in the field, we also leveraged CPD's administrative data to actually look at outcomes like uses of force and what types of arrests the officers were making to be able to compare how the officers who did the training looked on these types of outcomes relative to the comparison group. All right, so walk us through the major results. Did it help officers avoid excessive force and unnecessary arrests? Indeed it did. In terms of the field outcomes, we see really substantial reductions in two key adverse policing outcomes. We see that there's a 23% reduction in uses of non-lethal force. 23%. That's right. Wow. And a similar-sized reduction in discretionary arrests. In addition, we also observe that the training reduces racial disparities in some critical policing outcomes. So, for example, the trained officers reduce the arrest rates of black subjects by 11%, while there's no equivalent reduction in the arrest rates of other groups. That means the training helps close the racial gap in arrest rates overall. In addition, all of this is happening without actually changing overall levels of officer activity. So this isn't making officers less productive overall. And it's not endangering the officers. In fact, we see exactly the opposite. We see that officer injuries fall by nearly 50%, meaning the training is also keeping officers safer in addition to improving community safety and reducing these adverse policing outcomes. So just because they're taking a beat doesn't mean that that's endangering them anymore. That's right. Their consideration of alternative interpretations and being able to manage these cognitively demanding situations better is not leading to higher rates of officer injury. If anything, it's keeping them safer. Anuj, uh, what kind of response did the program get from the officers themselves? Did you give them a questionnaire like, did you like this? Did you not like this? Um, Do you know if they felt like it made a difference to them in the field? Yeah, so we, um, after officers took the training, we asked them to fill out a course evaluation. And we were kind of struck by how positive officers were uh, in evaluating this training. It ranked for many of them as among their favorite trainings that they've taken. And I think part of what we heard is this training feels very responsive to the demands that they're facing in the field. And it felt like, for them, it felt like it was giving them new tools that they could immediately put into practice in the field as well. Something else that you included in your research, though, was taking a look at how this affected officers over time. And I wonder if you could talk a little bit about what you saw there in terms of short-term versus long-term impact of the training. Sure. We see these really strong reductions in the uses of force and discretionary arrests for about four months after the training. And the picture gets a little complicated when we go past that. So we're also able to look in these additional periods, five to eight months after the training and nine to 12 months after the training. 
And the reason that the picture is complicated is because the effects there are not statistically significant, but these data are really noisy. So what that means is we can't actually say that the effects are smaller in those later periods in a statistical sense relative to what we see in the first four months after the training. But since they're not as strong in those latter periods, we think that is consistent with the idea that the effect of the training fades out over time. And what that suggests to us is that refresher trainings and running the officers through additional scenarios will really help to reinforce the effects and sustain the effects strongly over the course of the year, which I think aligns with the tradition of having repeated refresher trainings in police training overall. What kind of cost would a police force be looking at to implement this kind of training? Well, what we know is that the cost of the training per officer is about $864. And that is about as much as other trainings that focus on these type of topics um, typically cost. So for example, LAPD's use of force training has a very similar per officer cost. Now, the question is, how does that stack up against the benefits? And that's actually a fairly hard question to answer because the benefits of CIT-D could be so wide and are kind of hard to value. Like there are physical and psychological gains from having fewer arrests and uses of force that people are subject to. There could be less social unrest. There could be more trust in the police and greater cooperation from, from having these. Fewer, fewer lawsuits. Absolutely. Exactly. <laughs> yeah. But what we, can, what we can do is we can just hone in on one benefit, which is the reduced officer injuries from this training. And just that one benefit actually outweighs the cost. So the reduced officer injuries result in a benefit of about 1056 per officer, outweighing the cost of 864 per officer. So in that sense, this is a training that could, could actually pay for itself. All right. So I want to ask this final question of both of you. Um, if you could speak to the whole of policing in America, uh, what would you tell them about what you've learned and how it could affect policy? Anuj, let's start with you. So I think the problem of adverse outcomes in policing, like excessive force or unnecessary arrests, is it's massive. And it means that we need as many perspectives or approaches to mitigating those adverse outcomes as possible. And so it makes sense to ask, okay, well, is there an issue with individual officers? It makes sense to ask, what can we do about accountability and oversight? But I think we also need to ask, well, what does the task of policing look like itself? And how do we better equip officers to navigate the demands of the job? And so this is one other approach that I think should sit alongside an all-hands-on-deck approach to trying to mitigate these adverse outcomes. Yeah, I would say the challenge of adverse policing outcomes is a vast one. And we need as many potential levers to bring to the problem to address it as possible. What we're really optimistic about is being able to leverage behavioral science more broadly to be able to come up with different types of 
potential levers that could be helpful. So I think we're excited about the work because we think this training itself is demonstrating how officer behavior can be changed with training along these lines. And it also gives us hope to be able to draw on behavioral science more broadly to come up with additional potential levers uh, to address this vast social challenge. Thank you both so much for your time today and uh, really appreciate the research. Obviously, this is not an issue that's going to go away anytime soon. So any potential we have to help solve it can't help but be a good thing. Appreciate your time. Thank you so much, Tess. Thanks so much, Tess. Appreciate it. The Pi is a production of the Becker Friedman Institute for Economics and part of the University of Chicago Podcast Network. If you'd like to keep in touch with the latest economic research from the University of Chicago, you can visit bfi.uchicago.edu slash subscribe. If you're enjoying the discussions we're having on this show, there's another University of Chicago Podcast Network show you should check out. It's called Big Brains. Big Brains brings you the stories behind the pivotal scientific breakthroughs and research that are reshaping our world. Change how you see the world and keep up with the latest academic thinking with Big Brains, part of the University of Chicago Podcast Network. Our theme music was composed by Story Mechanics, production assistance from the BFI communications team. I'm Tess Vigland, your host and executive producer. Thanks for listening, and we'll see you next time. Mm-hmm.